1: To Victorious. My name is Angel Fall. The title of today's show is Love to Death, Part One. Because it's Valentine's Day month or season, I'm going to take a look at how gun violence and conjugal partner violence intersect and create this homicide rate that we have decided on this show, not based on my opinion, but on the public health initiatives of others. That violence particularly gun violence is an epidemic in America particularly in the african-american community my name is Angel Fall and each week we have a live podcast on the black talk radio network I want to thank my sound engineer and founder of the black talk radio network Scotty Reed so we're going to start with explaining to you uh, some facts behind Gun violence when it comes to conjugal partners. It's also called domestic violence. Don't uh don't be mis don't misunderstand that you have to be married to be a victim, but sometimes you do have to be married in order to get the full protection of the law. And many gun advocates are trying gun violence advocates are trying to get that changed in various court jurisdictions. We have talked about that On previous shows, and I'll I'll make a reference to that later, if you are joining me online, I'm reading from thetrace.org. Domestic violence claims at least 2,000 lives each year. Seventy percent of the victims are women. More than half the time, the weapon used to carry out an intimate partner homicide when a person targets a spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, or someone with whom they had a previous romantic relationship is a gun. Really, I'm using the word conjugal, they're saying romantic, but the, uh, when you unpack that definition it means that this is probably your sex partner, uh, this could be someone that you have had uh, children with, it could be someone that you used to date, used to be married to, and many gun advocates want these laws to apply to stalkers and in dating relationships. But moving back to the article. The link between guns and fatal domestic abuse is so strong, research shows, that simply living in a state with a high rate of firearm ownership increases a woman's risk of being fatally shot in a domestic violence incident. The, the domestic violence epidemic is fueled by many factors. By the presence of firearms, often, but the presence of firearms often increases the lethality of attacks and expands the number of victims. Lethality meaning the increase of a deadly event or an event that can cause morbidity or mortality. Again, those are words we often bounce around when we look at the public health models. Abusers' intent on killing an intimate partner, especially if they use a gun, often take out other people who happen to be on the scene, children, friends, grandparents, total strangers. And I'm interjecting here, policemen have been killed in domestic violence incidents as well as people's pets and we could all agree they're probably unintended victims. While the stats show that guns are used to kill women in 53% of inter- intimate partner homicides, they're responsible for 70% of these collateral victims. Um, other research says 60% or 57 but when you're doing research and you see a, a deviation in a, in a pattern like this, um, if it's less than 5%, that's called statistical insignificance. Also, The data that I'm quoting quoting, is based on the research that was done. So a different group of researchers may have found something slightly different, but it shouldn't deviate by more than 5% to be considered uh, on the same standard. A police officer slain, I mentioned that, while responding to domestic disputes, 95% of them were killed with firearms. One study found that domestic violence victims are five times more likely to be killed if their abuser has access to a gun. One of the myths about domestic violence is that it's private that it happens behind closed doors and we should just stay out of it says Leslie Morgan Steiner, an abuse survivor and author whose memoir Crazy Love chronicled the story of her violent relationship. It's such an enormous community problem. federal law, bars can convict, convicted domestic abusers from gun ownership but without matching state laws local authorities often have no effective way of disarming those found or alleged to have done a partner harm the majority of americans support laws to prohibit abusers and the subjects of restraining orders from gaining access to weapons but only a handful of states have them in place to record how far domestic shootings reach and how far short current laws fall decreasing them but the, the trace has compiled a statistical guide that follows so if you're following me online you can go to the trace.org and look up domestic violence gun facts number one an american woman is fatally shot by her partner every 16 hours an average of 760 americans are killed annually with guns by their spouses, ex-spouses, or intimate partners, according to an Associated Press analysis of FBI and Florida homicide data from 2006 to 2014. So that's um, that's eight years of record-keeping that they're mentioning. Eighty percent of those victims were women, or as Jennifer Masia wrote, um, an American woman is fatally shot by her partner every 16 hours. A volatile relationship can quickly end in bloodshed. In 2013, as many as 280 women were fatally shot during an argument with their abuser, according to the story from the Violence Policy Center. And um, a lot of these organizations mentioning have Twitter feeds, and of course they have websites. Uh, this article mentions 12, 12 things about domestic violence and gun uh, use that you should know. Domestic abuse sometimes escalates to mass shootings, putting children in the crosshairs. Children are the most common victim of domestic mass shootings. Earlier this month, um, Megan Short told friends on Facebook that she's finally leaving her abusive husband. The day she planned to move into a new apartment, he fatally shot her, their three children, and the family dog before killing himself with a thirty eight caliber handgun the children were still in their pajamas. Such incidents are common enough to comprise their own category of mass shooting. And the analysis from 2009 to 2015, and those of you who follow me know that the the data that we quote and the research that we look at tends to be two to three years older than at the time we're presenting it. Um, returning to that article, analysis of 2009 to 2015, data by the Huffington Post, found that in 57% of shootings, resulting in at least four people killed with a gun, the site included shootings both in and outside of homes in this counting. The attacker targeted a family member or a romantic partner. While there are no government statistics on how many children are killed in domestic violence situations, that's interesting. The Huffington Post found that children under 17 years old made up the largest group of victims in its study domestic violence can also prove to be a precursor for public murder sprees before they embarked on their notorious mass shooting omar martin of orlando robert lewis Deere at planned parenthood adam Lanza, the sandy hook elementary school shooter perpetrated domestic violence against a family member or a romantic partner it's a long-standing phenomenon 50 years ago charles whitman killed his mother and stabbed his wife to death hours before his attack at the University of Texas Austin left 14 people dead. Um, for each one of the uh, facts they have, they have a, a, a very good visual. If you're following on the trace.org, uh, my name is Angel Fall. You're listening to Victims to to Victorious, and we're taking a look at the relationship between gun violence and conjugal or intimate partners. Researchers Lori Post and Emily M. Meyer analyzed 18 years of domestic violence fatalities from Michigan and focused exclusively on collateral homicides. Cases where individuals connected to the primary victim were also killed like a parent, child, or new boyfriend, for example. Returning to the mention of Adam Lanza, um, I have disclosed how I was, uh, I was actually teaching as a substitute, um, not at that school, but at another school in Connecticut, and the only African-American victim, female victim, she's half black and half Puerto Rican, was eulogized at my church, and so I am connected to this horrible incident. But what I really want to bring out here is Adam, the article doesn't mention who those other mass shooters shot, but Adam Lonza's first victim is his mother, and ironically she's the one who purchased the guns for him so you're talking about a straw buyer situation and some she's not the only woman who ends up being killed by uh, a family member who was not able to obtain a gun and they obtain a gun and they use it on the person who's purchased it so take a minute to think about all the little public health caveats and policies had they been in place would not have occurred and uh, the outcome would have been different. Returning to the article where the researchers Lori Post and Emily Meyer now analyzed 18 years of domestic violence fatality from Michigan and focused exclusively on collateral homicide. We defined that already. So the primary victims um, are the primary target would have been the intimate partner current former husband etc but the children parent other members in the household get murdered too so these were researched researchers found that 111 such victims including 27 new dating partners 17 parents or step parents ten friends five siblings and two members of the extended ma- members family 15 victims were the woman's children with no biological ties to the man and 11 were shared by the woman and the perpetrator that's kind of an interesting statistic so the children are killed in the home in this um, collateral collateral damage scenario whether or not they are biologically related to the father so in other words the power of being the father or the stepfather is probably where I would say the uh, Social pathology is consistent. In some cases, the batterer deliberately killed the kids but spared the woman. What could hurt the woman more than hurting more than hurting her? Says Dr. Post, a professor of emergency medicine at Yale University Medical School. There's nothing worse than you can do that you can do to her, in killing her children. Number four, domestic violence kills police officers. If you're following online, or wish to look it up later, go to the trace and type in domestic violence gun that'll bring up the article for you domestic violence calls led to more police fatalities than any other type of call and that's particularly interesting because we have a dialogue about african-american men and guns we have a continual dialogue about that so police officers are most likely to be killed in a domestic violence situation versus a traffic stop and of course you know or a foot chase and of course we've all seen horrific videos of them using deadly force on african-american men in this scenario but they're most likely to be killed when they respond to a domestic violence call so here is a story of one officer Ashley green dawns rookie weekend in the Prince William County Police Department I believe Prince William County is Maryland um, kicked off with a cheerful tweet welcoming her to the force. Hours later, she was dead after responding to a domestic dispute call. The gunman, Army Sergeant Ronald Hamilton, also fatally shot his wife, Crystal, and injured two other police officers who had arrived at the scene. A new report from the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund documented what individual police departments have known for years. Domestic violence calls are the most lethal scenarios for officers. The report examined deaths in the line of duty from 2010 to 2014 and found that domestic dispute calls led to more fatalities, 20 in total, than any other kind of call, including burglaries or shots fired. Domestic violence kills innocent bystanders. Brian Mortenson, 32, was installing a fence at an apartment complex in Orlando, Florida, when a flight, fight broke out nearby between Jaquel Ward and his pregnant pregnant girlfriend. Ward followed her into the parking lot, firing several shots with his 45-caliber high-point pistol. One of the stray bullets struck Mortenson in the chest. Ward offered Mortenson $400, but didn't call 911. Weeks later mortensen died from his injuries leaving behind a wife and a newborn daughter this article does not um mention the outcome of the uh, pregnant girlfriend even if outsiders are sympathetic to domestic violence they often think it won't affect them said officer michael Scullo- larry a 27 year veteran of the Salem, massachusetts police department like the way this article takes a look at different scenarios around the country because of course we are broadcasting nationally and internationally because of um, our technical capability here at black talk radio network in an interview with the trace Long officer talk. mark love Rivera said the reality is you could be buying groceries tomorrow and get shot because some estranged husband comes in to kill his girlfriend who is the cashier and here I want to mention a historical a historical statistic um uh, when he says his girlfriend is the cashier uh conjugal partners, intimate partners, et etc, often seek out the woman at work, and um most men who die at work die from a work related injury where most women who die at work die from homicide. That's a very powerful statistic. You can look that up and leave a comment for me. On a victim to, Victims to Victorious on the Black Talk Radio Network. Or I, I answer direct tweets. My direct tweet is on air angel. One analysis published in 2014 in the American Journal of Public Health examined seven years of records from 16 states, including Alaska, Utah, and New Jersey. It found that 4,470 people died in 3,350 incidents. Approximately 20% of those killed were corollary victims, including 194 new partners, 140 friends, 133 children under the age of 11, and 25 strangers. Once again, the weapon of choice was a gun used to kill 70% of the corollary victims. The health care costs associated with domestic violence are astronomical. This is number six in the article that we're reading from The Trace, uh, 12 Facts About Domestic Violence, or 12 Gun Facts About Domestic Violence. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimated the cost of intimate partner violence against women in 1995 was at least $5.8 billion. Adjusted for inflation, today's world, it would be $9.1 billion. Now, remember... The Dickey Amendment still prohibits certain types of investigations into gun violence because the NRA lobby was so strong, and this has yet to be undone and especially won't be undone in the current climate of um, the Republican leadership. As a white paper from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation notes, now let me explain what a white paper is. A white paper with a professional, somebody with a training um, somebody who is advocating for something to be changed, and they are pointing out how these methods can be done. Uh, very often a white paper um, gets turned into to something more concrete. Uh, it can be turned into a, a funding opportunity. It can be turned into a policy. But the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation does a lot of there's um, a lot of research in healthcare and if you buy any of the Johnson Johnson products, you end up supporting it. As a white paper from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation notes, that figure doesn't include expenses like cost of shelter programs, foster care, mental health care for children who witness abuse or other chronic injuries that can linger decades after the abuse has stopped. The CDC found that in one year, domestic violence was the cause of more than 550,000 injuries requiring medical attention and nearly 8 million Lost days of paid work. And you see, the data that they gathered, so I want the listener to understand the data that they're gathering really about the cost of domestic violence. Most of that is going to come from emergency room costs, maybe some of the follow up. Um, but the emergency room treatment is the most expensive part of the food chain, but it's actually usually where women, uh, female victims, or any victim. Uh, when they enter the system. So then there would be if the person is hospitalized, and you're talking about the cost of the hospital stays, et cetera. So um, number seven, um, as horrifying as deadly as domestic violence can be, consider experts, consider it to be somewhat, though not perfectly, predictable. Now, I'm taking a little bit of an exception with that, it's not somewhat predictable. In public health models, any health event that is turned into an epidemic or has a pattern can be predicted. Okay, so I'm taking exception to that uh, based on my training. Dr. Jacqueline Campbell, professor at Johns Hopkins University School of Nursing, has studied domestic violence for 35 years. She says that the best indicator of whether or not a woman will be killed by her partner is prior domestic violence between these two people. Her research found that 70% of the women who were killed by their partners had been abused by that same person before their death. Among women who have been abused, says Dr. Campbell, the biggest risk factor for homicide is when an abuser has access to a gun. If a victim were previously threatened with a gun by their partner, the risk of death jumps even more dramatically, leaving the abused 20 times more likely to die. So we're reading from 12 facts that show how guns um, influence the outcome of domestic violence. I'm paraphrasing the title right now. Other risk factors include illicit use, drug use, job loss, living with a child who's not the abuser's biological child, and a criminal history. When you're listening to me and when you're reading facts about this and when you're trying to decide how to help things, uh, how to help change things, Notice that there are discrepancies. Notice there are different points of view. Notice that the data can be represented differently. In the previous article, the same article, but previously we read that the number of children who were biologically related to the abuser and the number of children who were not, that there was no statistical significance in the numbers that were killed. Now it, it's counterintuitive. I would think that, I would think that the children who are not biologically that of the child uh, of the mother. Would it be more likely to kill? But the previous, uh, the previous data that I mentioned earlier says that it was almost identical in terms of collateral damage. Dr. Campbell has devised a danger assessment instrument to help social workers and members of law enforcement identify the women whose lives are particularly at risk in an abusive relationship. But this article doesn't say. But I would hope that after she passes out her survey, she has some type of intervention that can be done. It's not enough just to be identified with something. Think about this. If you were to go to the doctor and you identified, the doctor realizes that you have a heart condition, aren't you expecting him or her to make some recommendations so that you can be worked up for heart surgery, so that you can change your diet, so that you can have a heart monitor, etc.? So I, I just think this is a, a fallacy of the article. Hopefully she um, did some follow-up or was able to offer an intervention, and maybe we'll see that article and that data later. Number eight of the 12 facts that show the relationship of gun violence to domestic violence, um, it is on the thetrace.org. We have about five minutes to this before the station ID. Let me see if I can get to a couple of more and return uh, with them after the break. The most dangerous time period for a domestic violence victim is when she decides to leave her partner. When a woman leaves a partner, they can trigger a sharp escalation in violence, says Dr. Campbell. Her research found that women are 3.6 times more likely to be killed shortly after leaving a partner compared to other women in physically, physically abusive relationships. But that's not ever to say that a woman shouldn't lead, asked Dr. Campbell. They're eventually safer after leaving an abusive relationship. Years ago, uh, Oprah had an author on Anna Quinlan, and she wrote a fantastic book about domestic violence. Um, And one of the things that women, one of the things that's recommended in the book or one of the strategies is that if you are being abused, you don't tell him that you're leaving. If you are allowed to go to work, and some of you are, you know, screwing your face up. Some of them don't want you to work because it's part of the control or some of them want you to work someplace where you can be easily found by them so they can stop by and check on you or they have their co spy on you, et cetera. Or they want you working out of the home. Maybe you maybe you have a daycare out of the home. Um, I know someone who was abused and she took in sewing in her home um, so that she would not... so that she would not... Uh, have to leave to leave so she would be under his control he would know exactly where she was so in leaving Anna Quinlan mentions that you should have a strategy for leaving and this book predicates when everyone had a cell phone but one of your strategies for leaving if you are allowed to work or go grocery shopping is that you simply don't come back from one of those events that you're allowed to do and many women are killed when they are removing stuff the policemen are shot when they're removing items Think about this. You can get another TV. You can get some more coats, some more jeans. The only thing in that house that is not replaceable is you or your children. And your your pets are at risk, as we have discovered. So, for instance, um, if you're allowed to walk the dog, okay, walk the dog one day and keep it moving. So how do you escape? One of the things you need to do if you are in this relationship and, um, I have been trained in this area and I've helped women do some of these things. So one of the things that you want to do if you are trying to escape, number one, you don't disclose that you're escaping. Number two is you want your escape route to be as untraceable as possible. And there are are networks for women, very similar to what my ancestors as slaves used to escape slavery in uh, Virginia and Louisiana. There are underground networks where you can go and seek refuge and get even a new identity if it's it's such that your life is in that much danger. So when you leave, you don't want him to notice that anything is amiss. A lot of times a domestic violence uh, perpetrator controls your money. If you can siphon off a little bit of money, this will help you. Also, if he knows your friends or your relatives, Don't tell them about your initial escape plan. Remember when we talked about collateral damage, some of these men are going to go to your mother's house. They're going to go to your grandmother's house. Some of them might even go to your ex-husband's house looking for you. When they start to look for you, they are intending to bring you back, and if you don't come back, they are intending to kill you. I think listeners out there, I'm not the only person who knows someone for whom this was the reality. I know of a woman who didn't go far enough. She left, she moved around the corner, and when he when she, he saw her get off the bus one day, he simply shot her dead in the street. Number nine, getting a gun doesn't help a woman protect herself and could actually endanger her. Many Americans and 56% of female gun owners believe that owning a gun makes them safer. The available research, by contrast, suggests that when a woman owns a gun, she actually increases the chances still die. One landmark study out of California analyzed six years of data from 1991 to 1996 and concluded that women who owned a gun died by fire or homicide by twice the rates of women who did not. In the same study, the authors found that the female gun owners were 15 times as likely to die of fire, suicide as women without guns. We have really never discussed firearm suicide of females on this show. Uh, Most suicide victims who are female do not choose to use, do not use a uh, a gun. But of course, virtually all men do. So one that one landmark study lets you know that the woman is more likely to still die by the firearm firearm homicide. And it doesn't say in number nine here. The real reason is that the man takes the weapon, or uses the weapon. Against her, so I, I personally know of a of a young woman who did a straw buy for her boyfriend, and he used that gun on her. So we will be back after this commercial break. You're listening to Victims to Victorious on the Black Talk Radio Network. Thank you for listening to the Black Talk Radio Network, and I really want to thank you for tuning into my show, I'm Victims to Victorious. My name is Angel Fall. You can follow both the Black Talk Radio Network and me on Twitter. And we are returning to our first series in our Valentine's uh, Day installment, uh, Valentine's Month installment, if you will. We're taking a look at the... The uh, relationship between guns and domestic violence, and the main source of today's show is an article on the Trace. Uh, it's called "12 Facts That Show How Guns," um, and I'm paraphrasing, "How Guns Impact the Rates of Domestic Violence." And there are quite a few of the organizations that I'm mentioning in the article that also have a Twitter feed so you can take a look at them, follow them, because everyone who is interested in the gun violence discussion that that is, I should say every organization, they're interested in a couple of things, influencing policy, informing victims, and changing the epidemic. And an epidemic, I'm going to define it again, uh, especially for those of you who this might be your first time listening to my show. You're used to the word epidemic being used for a disease-based Pathogen that infects the community. So, in the public health arena, uh, professors at, for instance, Johns Hopkins and Yale, they have decided that this is a societal epidemic, and that it has infected the entire society in North America, and particularly some target groups, and that would be African Americans. The particular target group that we're looking at right now, though. Women and I don't really have a racial breakdown in these articles, women who are victimized by their abusers who then end up shot and killed by their abusers. At the beginning of the show, we also took a look at other people who are victimized who are collateral damage. Policemen are most likely to be killed on a domestic violence call, people's pets, um, neighbors, friends, and other household members. With most of the household members uh, that are overrepresented are actually children. And the data is split on whether or not the children are biologically related to the abuser. So, going on to number 10, to prevent intimate partner homicide, the most effective intervention is getting guns out of the hands of batterers through whatever legal form that takes, says April Zialoli, a professor at Michigan State University whose 2015 paper and analyzed gun violence interventions to identify the most effective practices and practices here means how can how can organizations how can hospitals how can how can legislators stop these events from occurring so the other thing I like about this article on the traits is it takes a look at a whole, at each different region of the country. It looks at research that is studied in different areas and different policies and practices that we can all benefit from, okay? Dr. Campbell's research has found that domestic violence victims are significantly more likely to end up dead if their abuser has access to a gun. She notes that such killings are often propelled by high emotions and substance abuse. But when you put a gun in that mix, That's when things can get the most easily fatal. Number 11 of the 12 facts, most Americans support legislation to keep guns away from domestic abusers. More than 65% of Americans support barring people from owning a gun if they have been issued a restraining order or convicted of stalking. Right now, I'm stepping away from the article, the law is very thin about stalking. Federal law prohibits domestic abusers from owning firearms, but that statute nonetheless leaves victims vulnerable in multiple ways. As the trace is reported, under federal law, is only consider domestic violence if the victim is currently or formerly married or living with his or her abuser, or if the parties have a child together, even though about as many people are murdered by their dating partner. As by their spouses. So let's unpack and untangle that a little bit. This is why a lot of the gun advocates want the law to be broadened, in the federal law to be broadened, and then local jurisdictions may or may not recognize what I'm calling conjugal. Um, some of them, their hands are tied to because if it says, cur- the federal law says, currently or formerly married to or living with his or her abuser or if the parties have a child together. Where the loophole is and where some of these men are getting away with this is they're dating the victim or they don't have children with the victim. So the law has to be widened in terms of scope of victim, and then the interpretations by each jurisdiction need to also be widened so that some of this applies. Notice that the federal law that we're reading from here does not cover stalkers, for instance. And there is a mix with the stalkers. Some stalkers actually really do know you. They're an ex-boyfriend. They're a former coworker. But in this day of social media, people have been killed and victimized by stalkers who they have never met. They've stalked them on the Internet, and then they show up in person. Okay, so this gap in protection is known as the boyfriend loophole. In a recent year, at least 10 t- states have passed laws to close it. Notice here that we, this is an ongoing backstory. The federal law is supposed to be enforced in all 50 states, but then there are loop, loopholes and parts where it is vacant and it's not applicable. 10 states have passed the boyfriend loophole, and that's 10 out of 50. And in recent year, at least 10 states have passed laws to close it. The Zero Tolerance for Domestic Abusers Act was introduced last year by Democrat Congresswoman Debbie Dingell of Michigan and Republican Congressman Robert Dold of Illinois would close the boyfriend loophole on the national level. Uh, We need to take a look at that. If you're listening, post a message or call in and tell me Um, if you have more updated information on that. Prohibiting anyone from getting a gun if they've abused a current or former dating partner or if they have been convicted of stalking. About 65% of Americans support banning people from owning a gun if they have been issued any kind of restraining order or convicted of stalking, according to a 2014 poll from the Huffington Post and YouGov.org. The survey also found that 66% of Americans want to close the boyfriend loophole. So, if you're following me on the internet and you're looking at the article in the Trace, the 12 Facts article, there's a nice little graphic. It shows that 16 states have a temporary restraining order gun can trigger gun removal from accused abusers, and uh, most of those states are in the New are in New England. I'm using the map and my memory of what the states are based on their shape. Maine is one, Connecticut, New York, Pennsylvania, um, The couple, California is one. And California has often been in the forefront of changing these gun laws. Remember, California now has a law where bullets are micro-stamped so that they can be identified by law enforcement and this greatly increases the ability of law enforcement to solve crime. When federal law says that convicted abuse, domestic abusers, or those under protective order for domestic abuse can't own or purchase firearms, it doesn't specify what happens to the guns or who seizes them and leaves the states to figure it out. Again, this is seen as a loophole. This is seen as a fallacy of the law. Some states, well, I'll let the article explain. When laws stipulate the removal of guns from alleged abusers, there can be deadly consequences. In November of 2014, Leanne Shuldies, a 38-year-old Idaho mother of four, applied for a temporary restraining order, which is called a TRO, against her long-term boyfriend, who had threatened to kill her. A judge granted her request scheduling a hearing for a permanent restraining order three weeks later, during which time Shulby's partner remained able to own guns. Ten days after the TRO went into effect, Shulby's boyfriend, Bailey shot her and her 17-year-old daughter before killing himself with his shotgun. In recent years, states have taken steps to get guns out of abuser's hands, with South Carolina passing a package of measures after a scathing newspaper series exploring its worst in the nation, worst in the nation rate for fatal domestic violence. But most states still wait for a restraining order to become permanent to remove guns from abusers, potentially leaving victims exposed during those initial dangerous days following a separation. As of this writing, only sixteen states Authorize or require the removal of firearms from subjects of temporary restraining orders. On October 1st, Connecticut will become the 17th state to enact such a policy. I I was actually in court one day in Connecticut uh, where I saw the law applied to someone. I'm going to um, click on the hyperlink and name some of the states because I can't, I can't really, uh, discern which states, all which are all the states based on um, the map. So most states, um, most states wait for the outcome of a hearing on a permanent order before a firearm ban kicks in, but some states don't. And so Connecticut is one of them, 14 states, Idaho is one of them, um, have no statutes whatsoever governing gun surrender, that's the word I was looking for. Experts believe that per- the period immediately after a temporary restraining order is sought and can be especially dangerous as the prospect of losing control of their victims can propel abusers to lash out. But 34 states do not compel someone served with a temporary order to surrender their firearms, instead, waiting for the outcome of a court hearing on a permanent order before a gun ban can be instituted or guns collected. The 16 states where a temporary restraining order is enough to force an alleged abuser to relinquish his or her guns are a motley group. This is the article language that include both liberal California and gun-loving, the gun-loving Dakota. So those are two of the states I didn't identify, North and South Dakota. I'm trying to identify another one just based on um, Illinois, Indiana, California. Washington state it looks like from from the map so that article was very very informative uh, you can find it on the trace dot com dot org I'm sorry and I want to take a look at um, an article from the Washington Post in the time that we have We have about fifteen minutes left. My name is Angel Fall and this is a series of shows for the month of February based on The fact that women are at least 70% of the victims when it comes to domestic uh, when it comes to being shot and killed in a domestic violence dispute the title of the show is love to death this is part one I'm Angel Fall and we're broadcasting our podcast here on the black talk radio network.com the Washington Post has an article that I want to take a look at and again I like I chose these articles because they are taking a look at different regions of the country and if you've been following B2B since last year, we constantly talk about that what state you live in determines whether or not you are going to be um what what kind of protections you have against gun violence. So the article begins uh with Sierra Jackson filed for restraining order claiming in court documents that her ex-boyfriend victor whittier had sent a series of threatening text messages and then lurked outside her home one of the things i like about this article um, it's actually called uh, democracy dies in darkness domestic slangs brutal and foreseeable remember we mentioned what could be predicted these crimes can be predicted because the men have had previous violent acts toward other conjugal partners, other intimate partners, or the woman who ends up murdered. Sierra Jackson filed for a restraining order uh, claiming in court documents that her ex-boyfriend Victor Whittier had sent a series of threatening text messages. I'm reading that again because this article actually addresses the fact that there is a stalking behavior and social media is being used. Jackson 24 had previously called police when Whittier broke into her apartment and ransacked it, but she chose not to pursue criminal charges according to authorities. She had asked her property manager whether she could break her lease, hoping to secretly and safely escape with her 11-year-old brother, whom she was raising. Secretly escape. So she had had some advice about how to leave without causing the victimizer to feel. Like he needs to escalate power and control. on August 2nd of 2017, a judge granted Jackson a year-long restraining order against Whittier. He was to have no contact with her and needed to stay at least 2,500 feet away at all times. Eleven days later, Jackson was dead. Authorities say Whittier shot Jackson four times through her apartment window. The restraining order lying on top of a microwave just a few feet from her body. When the investigators asked whether Jackson had trouble with anyone, her brother handed them the document. Jackson's death came with clear warning, a killing that played out in slow motion as all of her efforts and those of law enforcement and the court failed to stop what she was as inevitable. A Washington Post analysis Of 4,480 killings of women in 47 major cities during the past decade found that nearly half of the women who were killed, 46%, died at the hands of an intimate partner. In many cases, they were among the most brutal deaths and the most telegraphed. Interesting choice of words. In a close analysis of homicides in five of the cities, the Washington Post found that more than one-third of all men who killed a current or former intimate partner were publicly known to be a potential threat to their loved one and one ahead of the, loved one ahead of the attack. Remember, there is a theme about the violence behaviors that public health officials and sociologists and social workers know. The pattern of violence is a predictor of an escalating violent act. In Fort Worth, Las Vegas, Oklahoma City, San Diego, and and St. Louis, 36% 36% of the 280 men implicated in a domestic killing had a previous restraining order against them or had been convicted of domestic abuse or a violent crime, including murder, the Post found. Killings of intimate partners often are especially brutal, involving close encounters such as stabbings, strangulations, strangulations and beatings, the Post analysis found. Nearly a quarter of the 2,000 2000- 51 women killed by intimate partners were stabbed compared with fewer than 10% of all other homicides. 18% of women who were killed by partners were attacked with a blunt object or no weapon. No weapon means obviously that the man is just able to beat the woman to death or stomp her to death, uh, push and cause fatal injuries compared with 8% of other homicide victims. While a gun was used in 80% of all other deaths, just over half of all women killed as a result of domestic violence were killed with a gun. Again, we're seeing some discrepancy in the reporting and the data. But what is consistent here is while a gun was used in 80% of all other deaths, just over half of all women killed as a result of domestic violence were attacked with a gun. That's still within the statistical realm. We've seen 52%, 57%. Violent choking is almost entirely confined to fatal domestic attacks on women, with fewer than 1% of all homicides resulting from strangulation. 6% of women killed by intimate partners die in this manner, the Post found. It is also a warning sign. Those who attempt to strangle an intimate partner are far more likely to later commit extreme acts of violence, police and researchers say, and many in law enforcement believe it to be a strong indicator that an abusive relationship could turn fatal women killed by intimate partners are often done so with murder weapons that lend themselves to close encounters and are especially brutal and there is a chart um, women have been victimized by sharp objects blunt objects strangulation and of course the show is about uh... the gun removal and domestic violence the post analysis as part of a year-long effort to examine, to examine homicides in major American cities to the extent to which authorities, at a time uh, when the national homicide rate nears historic lows, fails to solve killings. Unlike other types of homicides, domestic slain often involves killers who leave a long trail of warning signs or signal their intent, in some cases threatening to kill their victims. Domestic violence cases are complex often involving victims who are reluctant to report abuse for fear of being further angering their abuser or losing their financial support. Those who do seek help often encounter fractured legal networks and a lack of cohesive support. Many victims are killed after police and courts have stepped in. That's a powerful statement. Many victims are killed even after police and courts have stepped in. Of course, some people will argue that once you file against him and he knows about it, there's a lot of proof that you are at more risk the analysis of domestic killings draws on public records and news reports and it's probably and it probably understates how often american women are killed by boyfriends husbands ex ex partners because some cities offer scant information about their homicide cases the tally counts murder suicides which some prosecutors off offices do not have in their data set because what the killer did, there are no criminal cases to pursue. In five cities, at least a third of men implicated in a domestic slang had a restraining order against them or who were previously convicted of domestic abuse or a violent crime, including murder. So in Texas, there is a chart here. Um, men with previous public history of abuse or of violence who then commit a homicide. So in Fort Worth, Texas, 55% of them. In Las Vegas, 35% of them. 32% of them in Oklahoma City, 36% of them in St. Louis, 37%. So that is, that is a marker for violence that ends in death towards the conjugal partner. The POST data aligns with recent research into the murders of women, including a report from Northeastern University Criminology Professor James Allen Fox, who used FBI data from police departments to find that 44.8% of women killed from 2007 to 2016 were killed by an intimate partner. Fox also found that 5% of all men killed from 2007 to 2016 were killed by an intimate partner. So that statistic is very interesting because it shows you how how, how seldom a man is actually murdered by his intimate partner. Uh, 5% of all men from 2007 to 2016 were killed by an intimate partner. And obviously if you're listening and paying attention, for women it's quite, you know, it's astronomically time, many times that. Uh, there are a number of motives for intimate partner homicide the professor says. Previous acts of violence that we were saying, separation or divorce, we mentioned that. These are all precursors, but they're not reliably predictive and that is the struggle. Authorities and those who work with victims of intimate partner violence say that violence say the most glaring signs that a relationship can turn fatal are often elusive to law enforcement, including things that are obvious to those around them, but rarely make the public record. Death threats, be- death threats behind closed doors, easy access to guns, jealousy, separation, or breakup. Here I'm stepping away from the article. If you are listening to the show and you are getting these text messages, if you have an iPhone, you can take a screenshot and then email it to yourself, and you should be able to email those screenshots to law enforcement, for, in- for instance. If you are getting emails that are threatening, remember you can print them out and attach them to your police report. Another thing you can do if you're not really, if you've given up on tactile things like paper, is you can take the text or the emails and forward them to, some police departments will allow you to do it, but you can afford forward it to a friend or someone who you know would keep it. You can also put, um, you can store those messages on a thumb drive so that you can prove you can prove that you are re- you are receiving threatening text messages or threatening emails or any kind of threatening message across a social media platform. Get a way to document, upload, screenshot it, so that when you file for the police, they will, police report, you will be showing them that there is a pattern here of being threatened. We have less than five minutes to go. The title of the show is Love to Death Part One. Uh, because it's Valentine's Valentine's Day in the month of February, uh, each show this month in February, we're going to take a look at the victims of domestic violence, particularly when it comes to gun violence. Returning to, I'm not going to read the whole article um, from the Post, but I am going to take a look at a little bit more of it just before uh, we end this show. Authorities... Uh, we're returning to the Post article. Authorities and those who work with v- victims of intimate partner violence say that the most glaring signs in a relationship could turn fatal are often elusive to law enforcement. That's where we uh, left off and I was explaining how instead of just running in there and saying, oh, it's on my phone, it's on my phone, have a way for the police to have it documented on your phone. We have a lot of repeat victims and repeat offenders because, for for example, it may be the victim's only source of the babysitter. It may be the victim's only source of income, says Lieutenant Amy Parker-State commander of the Family Violence and Sex Crimes Unit in St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department. The victim comes back and says, I love him. I don't want to prosecute. And unfortunately, if it happens again, we revisit again, and it may be too late. we from the police officer in the article, on the second or third time they may be dead. Tracy Pryor, Chief Deputy District Attorney in San Diego County, said about 40% of the defendants in the domestic violence homicide cases her office prosecuted from 2007 to 2017 had prior criminal records. You wish you had a crystal ball, she says, because no prosecutor wants to see the same perpetrator doing that again. Oh, do we have a caller? I thought I heard something in the headset. But the most basic step authorities instruct abused women to take is filing a restraining order can lead to fatal violence because involving the legal system often is a flashpoint point. One prosecutor tells women who request an order to do so with a backpack and a plan. That's what we mentioned earlier with Anna Quinlan's article, you know, you should be ready, you should be ready to leave. Do not go back to get your TV. Do not go back to get your um, to get your clothing. You cannot be replaced. Your children cannot be replaced. And if the restraining order, if you know that the restraining order is going to cause your partner to get angrier at you, don't don't confront him. Don't confront him at all, and go to a place where he cannot find you. Don't go to a relative or friend's house. Because as we heard earlier, when some of these women have been found there, and the the abuser shoots everyone, shoots everyone in the house. We have about one minute to go. You're listening to Victims to Victorious on the Black Talk Radio Network. My name is Angel Fall, and if you are being abused and you're not able to talk to anyone, please call one eight hundred seven nine nine seven two three three. That's 1 800 799 7233. I want to thank the listening audience. We will be back next week with Victims to Victorious. I'm Angel Fall. Follow me on Twitter, On Air Angel. organizer has ended this.